I want to share with all our listeners that we've launched a Facebook group. You can find us on Facebook under Deep Dish on Global Affairs. This is a public group, so please join in. We'll post new episodes and relevant articles, but it also can be a place for you to ask questions, give feedback, and suggest guests and topics to us. So please check us out, Facebook group, Deep Dish on Global Affairs. This is a story about President Trump, how he governs. It's very revealing in that sense. I'm not sure it's very revealing of anything else, frankly. It's so demoralizing to the Palestinians because they know they're being played. They know that the the leaders in the region are perfectly happy to use the situation with the Palestinians as a diversion. So you're adding one more, uh, uh, you know, it's a tinder block. You're adding one more thing to agitate people and you're really opening the door for hardliners to move in. This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, and today we're talking about President Trump's recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital and his directive to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. I'm here with three experts to help us sort through this topic. First, I'd like to introduce Dr. Maha Yaha, uh, director of the Carnegie Middle East Center. Welcome, Maha. It's good to have you on. It's good to be on. Thank you, Brian. Also on the line is Susan Glasser, Politico's chief international affairs columnist and host of Politico's weekly podcast, The Global Politico. Welcome back, Susan. It's good to have you on again. Thank you so much. And rounding us out is a council regular, Cecile Shea, non-resident senior fellow here for security and diplomacy. Cecile also served as a U.S. diplomat for over two decades, including as a political affairs officer in Tel Aviv, Israel. Welcome, Cecile. Thank you, Brian. So on Wednesday, December 6th, President Trump formally recognized Jerusalem as the capital of of Israel, marking a a, a departure with previous uh, U.S. policy. He also cast his decision as a break, as an intentional break, with decades of what he characterized as failed policy on Jerusalem. Um, and he said this was just a recognition of, uh, of an existing reality. Uh, the Palestinians described the president's move as a sign that the U.S. is no longer an honest broker for peace. They were joined in, in condemning um, these decisions by leaders of countries around the world, in the region, places like Saudi Arabia and Turkey. Um, uh, outside the region, France, the United Kingdom, and others weighed in on this. The Israeli government, uh, by contrast, was was uh, very positive um, about this decision. To start us off, I, I just want to ground us in the disputes uh, that the the role is the role that Jerusalem plays in the in the dispute between um, Israel and and the Palestinians. And I wonder, Cecile, you spent um, uh, time on the ground um, there. If you could take uh, a first shot at just helping us understand um, what the nature of the conflict is over Jerusalem. Well, sure. Um, when Israel was created in 1948, Jerusalem was left as an international city. The Arab-Israeli War of 1948 led to Israel controlling most of West Jerusalem, um, and that in turn led to the capital of Jerusalem being, or the capital of Israel being built in Jerusalem. In 1967, Israel was able to conquer most of East Jerusalem along with the West Bank um, as part of the war. There, the U.S. has never recognized 
Israeli control over those areas, nor has the rest of the world. In 1995, the U.S. Congress passed a law, the Jerusalem Embassy Act, which states that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. We've never said that Jerusalem cannot also be the capital of a Palestinian state, and indeed the assumption has always been that the capital of a Palestinian state will be in probably a greatly expanded eastern Jerusalem. So in a way, President Trump is taking credit for something that was done, you know, 20 years ago in 1995. It has been the law of the land, and I've sat in meetings with ambassadors and secretaries of state who have reminded Israelis and reminded Americans that the law of the United States is that Jerusalem has been the capital of Israel. That's kind of where we stand. Now, the second half of that law allowed presidents to waive moving the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem by notifying Congress once every six months that the president believed that it was in the national security interests of the United States to postpone moving the embassy until a later date. And President Trump has now done just that twice. He waived it six months ago, saying it was the time was not right. And he waived moving the embassy again yesterday, although he also stated in his written statement and in his oral statement that he was instructing the State Department to get ready to start the move, even though he was officially waiving the move. So he's kind of leaving the door open for going either way. So the U.S. policy has always been, and indeed, you know, President Trump reiterated this in his statement yesterday, the policy has always been that the borders of Jerusalem, that sovereignty over various areas of Jerusalem would be decided in a final status agreement. In fact, though, the U.S. has always de facto recognized that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. As the president said in his statement, when presidents and secretaries of state visit Israel, they stay in Jerusalem. They don't stay in Tel Aviv. The last point I want to make, because I want to hear what Maha and Susan have to say, but the last point I want to make is, you know, even if the State Department began tomorrow moving the embassy to Jerusalem, you're talking about probably a 10-year process. Um, it's complicated building embassies in the modern world. It's a very high-threat country to, to build a structure in. You'd be talking about moving families, having to build a new school. So there would be a lot going on. Going on. So we're, no matter what, we're talking about something that would take a long time. But that really wasn't the purpose of the announcement yesterday. The purpose was to placate certain um, sectors of, in the United States in particular that have been pressing the president to, um, to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Thanks. Um, Maha, could you talk about why this is such an explosive and important issue for the Palestinians and also more broadly in the region? I'd say a couple of things. One is that um, the issue of Jerusalem, I mean, by acknowledging uh, that uh, or accepting that uh, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, this kind of torpedoes the position of the U.S. as a potential broker for a peace process between the Palestinians and the Israelis. The status of Jerusalem continues to be contested. So no matter how much the statement says that this, the status, the final status of the city is part, it will be part of the final negotiations, the fact that President Trump got up there and said we now recognize officially, uh, Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, um, it's already, he's already taken aside, so to speak. Um, this is really undermining uh, even further, I mean, the, the, the standing of the United States in this region, but also as a broker on the international stage, has already been undermined uh, considerably. This is undermining it even further. 
uh, as a potential broker for any kind of a peace process. Actually, I think it sets back the peace process even more than what it was already. Um, it also contravenes inter- UN resolutions, international resolutions on the final status of Jerusalem um, that uh, you know, are, are very clear in terms of uh, the city being an international city, uh, you know, holy to all the different three, the three main monotheistic religions, so on and so forth. Um, now, in terms of Jerusalem, beyond the peace process, the city itself houses the third most holy uh, site uh, for Muslims worldwide. Um, so the, the issue of Jerusalem uh, particularly goes far beyond the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. What we're already seeing now are reactions, not just in Arab countries, but in different uh, Muslim-majority countries around the world. My concern also here is that this is again undermining American interests worldwide. Um, America is being perceived clearly, even more than before, as having taken a clear side and biased the entire negotiations around the city of Jerusalem. And Susan, uh, President Trump characterized this, you know, differently than Maha just laid out, as a move that could break the deadlock for peace talks in the region between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Um, what do you understand his argument to be on that, and do you agree with it? Well, look, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. Um, I think the correct word to understanding this uh policy debate and why we're having it now is it is not really a policy debate and you know even that argument i think is not one that's really seriously advanced by president trump or his people this is an argument this is a story about president trump how he governs it's very revealing in that sense i'm not sure it's very revealing of anything else frankly uh... it tells you a lot about america's place in the world uh... almost a year into the trump presidency donald trump has decided to go it alone number one number two uh, as you saw in his announcement yesterday, he's delighted whenever the opportunity not only presents itself uh, to fulfill what he sees as a campaign promise, but especially if he can do so in a way that appears to flout uh, the experience of his predecessors. He seemed to be almost gleeful in reciting the failure of his three predecessors, Clinton, Bush, and Obama, to have followed through on this law, which after all was passed back in 1995, as we've already pointed out, uh, and yet has always been waived every six months ever since then. Uh, so this is a great win for, for Donald Trump as far as he's concerned when he gets to do something uh, that shows how his predecessors failed and he succeeded, uh, at number two. So that's very revealing. And then the third point that I would make about what this tells us about Donald Trump, much more so than it tells us about anything in the Middle East, is that for whatever reasons, he's pledged to make the quote-unquote ultimate deal uh, and to actually finally forge a peace agreement between Israel and the Palestinians. He's put his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, in charge of it, and yet they did something that by all accounts sets back uh, the course of actually making that deal rather than moves it forward in some concrete way. And to me, that says, A, they believed that probably this wasn't the right moment in time to really make meaningful progress. They decided, okay, we'll go ahead and take the hit, uh, because this is something the president wants to do on Jerusalem. And, you know, it's not going to be until sometime next year, at the earliest, if ever, frankly, uh, that Kushner actually unveils what his uh, brewing plan for Middle East peace is. And so I think, you know, from the point of view of 
the strategy surrounding how the administration is pursuing this ultimate peace deal. What it tells us is that the ultimate peace deal wasn't ripe for the unveiling, and so they're going to go ahead and make this very controversial announcement about Jerusalem because, you know, this is something the president had made a personal priority. But domestic politics, I think, as much as any international time frame or anything that's going on in the Middle East right now is really the reason for this otherwise kind of inexplicable announcement in December. Yeah, I agree. The announcement is just going to confuse people in the Middle East more than anything. But if I were on the pro-peace side um, of Israel or if I were a Palestinian, the one part of the announcement that would really upset me the most is President Trump saying that the U.S. continues to support a two-state solution so long as the two states come to that agreement. And the fact is the entire history of that part of the Middle East is that people do not come to the peace table and forge an agreement without extensive leadership uh, by the United States, be it by Henry Kissinger or be it by Jimmy Carter or, or be it by Bill Clinton. And so the fact that that statement seemed to indicate that the U.S. was going to leave it up to the parties to get back to the table and to decide if they want a two-state solution would really be demoralizing to certainly the Palestinian people. Yeah, I think that's a really important point about the Palestinians. I've spent the last few days talking to a lot of uh, people in and out of the administration about this, and uh, their close allies. And what I think is important to recognize is that as they uh, are preparing, as Jared Kushner has been going about this, they really haven't been extensively working all that closely with the Palestinians. Their strategy, and that of, by the way, Prime Minister Netanyahu, really relies upon an approach where the Arab Gulf state leaders, in particular led by the Saudis and their uh, shake-things-up young crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, their strategy relies on them. And they're much more skeptical about the Palestinians. And I think that they feel that somehow they must have at least a uh, a not-for-public-consumption assurance from the Saudis that they can live with this Jerusalem Declaration and sometime next year move forward anyways. But basically, I think, it if anything, it's just a reminder that the Palestinians have sort of lost their status at the table, even with the Americans, who are now turning uh, to other Arabs in the region as they think about how to move forward on uh, peace. But the problem, I mean, the problem with this is that if you're uh, moving forward on peace without the Palestinians, I'm not sure that the Saudis can deliver. They've already had to backtrack and say, at least to our knowledge, what has been leaked from the, uh, from the Kushner uh, peace plan uh, is obviously one that uh, is neither uh, just nor peaceful, nor is it built on everything that has been done thus far on the two-state solution. Um, even more so, it, the Saudis have already had to kind of backtrack and say this is not acceptable and Jerusalem cannot be the uh, capital of Israel and so on and so forth. The issue of Jerusalem is even more sensitive than the Palestinian-Israeli peace process. And I think this is where there's been a big kind of bungling. 
Um, the idea that these two are just synonymous is completely erroneous. To my mind, what is now going to happen with this announcement is that this is going to embolden hardliners, both political and religious hardliners, uh, on both sides of the, of the aisle. Uh, it's going to allow them to legitimize their policies. It's going to allow them to marginalize uh, any kind of dissent. Uh, it's basically an us versus them. Um, and this is this should be a considerable concern to everybody. It's, uh, I mean, it's uh, it's it's just uh, beyond belief. Everybody now is going to ju- every hardliner is going to jump on the bandwagon of saving Jerusalem and standing up for Jerusalem. Well, look, I think that you're exactly right that that is a real scenario. And frankly, I find it revealing that even the spin from the White House or from their partners in the Israeli government is very indicative of me that. They're trying to make the best of a situation that even the people who are in charge of this, even the Kushner team, doesn't really know how it's going to play out. But, you know, Donald Trump has done this again and again. I find it most revealing from that point of view. If you want to understand how Trump is willing to overrule his own secretary of state, his own defense secretary, again and again, repeatedly on sensitive issues, uh, and to do things that really are inexplicable except in a domestic political context from somebody who really has no idea what he's doing. And by all accounts, this is a very complicated issue that Trump has taken literally zero time to master the complexities of. And so, you know, think of it in that context. Sure, it could embolden the hardliners. What are other consequences? There's 10 other disastrous potential consequences from this. Uh, But the interesting thing, though, Uh, about this decision, as with many of Trump's shake-them-up decisions. If the worst doesn't happen, if, in fact, their analysis is correct, and, you know, the Arab governments are going to put out these very pro-forma statements of dissent, and the European allies are going to put out these very pro-forma statements of dissent, but if, you know, the world doesn't melt down, if there isn't an explosive new thing, uh, perhaps they really will have proved a point, in a very risky way, by the way. (laughs) But, you know, you could imagine six months from now, they say, well, see, we're vindicated. You know, uh, Jerusalem is still standing, and for other reasons, we've managed to get everybody to the table. It's risky, but you can see that as a possibility. Susan, can I ask you a question? Because it seemed like President Trump a week and a half ago was prepared to not waive the 1995 law, and that there may have been pressure on him, not only from his cabinet, but from foreign leaders, and I imagine from the oil industry, which has got to be really terrified right now, um, to to soften his stance a little bit. Was that your impression? Was there a change in his outlook over the last couple of weeks? No, I don't think so. I mean, frankly, to me, this is this has played out in a very predictable way. Uh, you know, the reporting that's out there that I, I think is correct suggests that there was a meeting on the Monday after Thanksgiving, and basically Trump said, this is it, this is the last time I'm going to sign this waiver, uh, make a plan for me. We're moving the capital, and we're, mo- you know, we're moving to Jerusalem. And, you know, so... I don't see this as any evidence, and people, frankly, have spent all year, you know, kind of fantasizing about how Donald Trump is so movable. Uh, You know, it seems to me this is a great example of how he wanted to do this on day one of his administration. Uh, you know, after frantic pleas not to do this in the middle of the inauguration and, you know, blow up the Middle East, uh, he did agree. But what did he agree? He agreed to put it off. He never changed his mind. And so to me, that's the context in which we should look at this. 
He never changed his mind. Those people who thought that he did were just fantasizing, uh, including, I think, some of these leaders in the Middle East who are just going to be uh, finding out just what it's like to get in bed with Donald Trump. You know, they could ask Jeff Sessions <laughs> what kind of a good, you know, ally and partner he is. Uh, and so I think that he came out uh, after Thanksgiving and he said, okay, just like with the Iran deal, I- I'm not doing it after this anymore. Uh, and I, I think that people thought maybe they were going to get him to sign it and not make a speech or something. They were wrong about that. He made a big fanfare, big hoopla, for goodness sakes, with a Christmas tree <laughs> behind him, no less. And, and Maha, turning back to the turning back to reaction in the region, um, you've studied social movements and popular movements in the Muslim world. Uh, people are very concerned about whether or not they're. This could spur violence in the re- in the region. Hamas, um, as reported today, called for a new intifada in response to this uh, pronouncement. What do you see as likely reactions um, at the popular level in the region? Look, in all honesty, we're going to have to wait and see. But already, what has already started happening is we've seen demonstrations, uh, protests across. Uh, a number of countries in Lebanon, in Palestinian camps, but also in universities. Uh, the same in uh, Jordan, in Morocco, in Tunis, in Iraq. So this is spreading quite significantly. The Mufti in Lebanon, for example, has asked all the uh, religious sheikhs tomorrow to talk about, to dedicate the Friday sermon to the issue of Jerusalem. So we're, we're, we're expecting to see demonstrations tomorrow. There are planned demonstrations for Sunday and Monday uh, in different parts of the region. Uh, most likely we'll also see things in, uh, in, in, I think, other Muslim countries, uh, probably in Afghanistan and Pakistan. I don't know. I mean, but uh, we, we, we really do need to wait and see how, things is, how, how it's going to play out. My expectation is there will be demonstrations. I'm not sure whether they will turn violent or not. Really, it's not... Uh, it's 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 not uh, very clear at this point, but definitely there will be there will be demonstrations. Um, this has touched a real raw nerve, and um, we will see violent actions down the road, but not necessarily in the sense of rioting immediately. Uh, and I'm talking across the region. In Palestine and occupied territories, that's a different story. Um, we're already seeing. Uh, I think we were, there were riots today in Bethlehem. It's not the first time that have happened. Uh, clashes between Palestinians and Israelis. Um, this may escalate again. We need to see how 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 this plays out. And and in terms of this regional violence and the public responding through violence, how is how important is the relationship between what the leaders of those countries do? and what happens on the ground. Is this something that just spontaneously emerges on the ground, or is, is political leadership important for shaping those reactions? Uh, I think um, on the issue of Jerusalem, a lot of it will be spontaneous. This is not something that, I mean, this is, people, this is something that people feel very strongly about at the individual level. Um, and in fact, what we've seen is that, if I, I'll give one example, uh, a few months ago, uh, two Jordanians were killed by uh, an Israeli, you know, somebody who works at the Israeli embassy in uh, Jordan. And the, this person was sent back to Israel, went back to Israel. He was literally extracted from Jordan because he, was, he had diplomatic immunity. And in Israel, he was given a hero's welcome. 
um, the public outcry was so strong in Jordan that it forced the government to change course and to now, I mean, until now, diplomatic relations haven't been properly restored because Jordan, the government was actually had to, has to, had to demand um, a proper, uh, you know, this person being held accountable, if you want, uh, for his actions in Jordan. Can I make a quick point on that? Because it's such an important point. I, I think the decision also underscores the very cynical view that uh, both the Trump White House and their partners, the, the other leaders uh, in the Arab world, have of Arab people. Uh, you know, these are, in many cases, uh, you know, authoritarian uh, societies, authoritarian leaders, and they've decided, basically, uh, we know the public thinks one thing, but as long as privately we get this assurance from, uh, you know, these uh, leaders that we're dealing with, we don't care, basically. And I think it reflects the disdain and the lack of uh, uh, democratic partners to forge a lasting peace in the region. Yeah, and I just want to add, it's so demoralizing to the Palestinians, because they know they're being played. They know that the leaders in the um, in the region, and as Susan just said, a lot of them are quite authoritarian. The readers, The leaders in the region are perfectly happy to use the situation for the, with the Palestinians as a diversion to uh, to stir up anti-Israel sentiment as a way to kind of distract from some of the problems in their own countries. But when push comes to shove, quietly in diplomatic circles, they time and time again refuse to do things that are in the best interests of the Palestinian people. And that's just so demoralizing. I mean, I can't imagine what it is to be living in these refugee camps now three and four generations later and realize that you are being played as a PR tool with very little real action. I think also for, uh, I mean, for, for coming back to the issue of Arab, Arabs, Arab citizens, uh, the normal Joe on the ground, um, the issue, the fact that the Palestinian uh, issue was used for so long by authoritarian governments to clamp down and dissent, so the idea that we still need to resolve our conflict with Israel, so this is not the time for you to you know, be asking for freedom, this broke in 2011. And anybody who doesn't see that is, frankly, I mean, this, this really broke in 2011. Um, people, uh, you talk to refugees, to Syrian refugees in Lebanon and in Jordan today, and you ask them about what do they want in Syria, what what kind of Syria do they imagine, and the language they use is a language of liberal democracy. They're looking for a governance system that gives them the rights and freedoms, the fundamental rights and freedoms that any democratic system uh, would give them. So the notion that uh, Arab citizens are just going to go along with it, I think is quite erroneous, at least in, in, in a large number of countries today. Look, I think this is a really important point, and I'm glad everybody has made it, because uh, I think it could, we don't know, but it could underscore the gap between, you know, the failed governance of these countries around the region and what people in the countries really want. But by the way, that does include the Palestinians. It's true how demoralizing this must be uh, for anyone who's in the West Bank today. Uh, but the flip side is their leadership is just as culpable and, and has played an active role in the failure to make peace along with all the other governments in, in the area. Uh, and it's a very, very cynical place. And I frankly just think that the, the Jerusalem decision underscores that.
Now, my concern with it underscoring this is, yes, it underscores it one more time. Uh, it's already been underscored in so many different places that this kind of underscoring is frankly one that was not needed at this particular point in time. That the region is already in flames. So you're adding one more, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a tinder block. You're adding one more thing to agitate people, and you're really opening a door for, as I said earlier, hardliners to move in. You know, it's going to marginalize anybody who's trying to uh, work for a better, a more democratic future in different parts of the region. Um, it's it's uh, it's so wrong on so many fundamental levels. Other than, frankly, it's also undermining international. Uh, again, going back to the United States international standing, it violates United Nations resolutions, so on and so forth. Cecile, did you well, want to? I think yeah, all agree. Yeah, absolutely. It was ill-advised on so many levels and completely unnecessary on so many levels. And it was really, I think as Susan has pointed out, it was pandering to certain domestic constituencies and another sign of Donald Trump's unwillingness or inability to live with the kind of nuance and, um, and you know, reading between the lines that goes with international diplomacy whether you're talking about Jerusalem or the Iran deal or a whole host of other issues, and, and he's just not able or willing to live with ambivalence, and that's a really dangerous aspect of his character. Uh, there are news that's coming out now that there uh, there have been some rockets fired from Gaza. Yeah, now, and to be fair, there are rockets fired from Gaza on a pretty regular basis. Gaza has been pretty quiet for quite a while, so I, this is the first time something like this happens in a long time, in quite a while. So we've talked about Trump's calculation, which was primarily domestic when he made this decision. We've talked about implications in the region and some of the responses that we might see from the region. I also want to ask you to just um, draw out what is at stake for the United States? Why does this matter to the, to the United States, what unfolds and, and, the, and the making of this decision? The bottom line is that Donald Trump has promised something very unrealistic. He has promised to make the ultimate deal uh, uh, between the Israel and the Palestinians, a deal that has eluded uh, all of his much more experienced and accomplished predecessors. He's assigned his son-in-law, who faces increasing uh, legal threats here at home uh, in the uh, Mueller investigation, to make this ultimate deal an inexperienced 36-year-old real estate heir. Uh, they have not only made no discernible progress towards this ultimate deal, but now they have, uh, for reasons to satisfy what appears to be their large political contributors and Republican Party backers, uh, gone ahead and underscored for everyone uh, that the United States, rather than being a neutral arbiter uh, in when it comes to Middle East peace, which is something that previous administrations worked very hard to establish, they, they've shown with this decision that they are absolutely hand-in-glove partners uh, with the Israeli government of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And I I think that's where we are. That's what we can say about it at the end of the year, uh, Donald Trump's first year in office. Uh, So not only should nobody be holding their breath for Middle East peace at this point, but I think, you know, really what we're doing is bracing to see how the region deals with yet another shock to the system. And, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't interpret it beyond that at this point. No, I, I agree. Brian, we should also add that, you know, 
the two worst oil crises of the last 50 years were both reactions to incidents inside of Israel. Um, this is a part of the world that, as much as I hate talking about oil because it makes it sound like um, that's the most important thing to the United States, the fact is our economy is based, and the world economy is based to a certain degree on access to Middle East oil. And so anything that riles the region always has a danger of affecting oil prices. Secondly, let's not forget, we have tens of thousands of troops still in Iraq. We have troops in Syria. Those folks are in danger now if the violence does pick up in ways that we we don't know what's going to happen yet, and we won't know for a couple of weeks. And our diplomats and all of our embassies are in danger, and a lot of them have been told to stay home, to stop traveling, because people just don't know what's going to happen yet. And to Maha's point, we won't know for a while if violence is going to break out throughout the region. So... Yes, if you're sitting in Chicago, it may seem like this is a long way away, but there are very real economic um, interests at stake, and there are very real physical security interests at stake for a lot of Americans living in that part of the world. Absolutely, and I think this is basically my main concern. And again, I go back to the point of um, the the fact that this is, as I said, undermines the uh, the position of the U.S. I mean, we have a status quo today that does favor Israel. This is favoring Israel even more. Um, so it's really undermined. Uh, it's, it's actually put the, the situation, the U.S. in a position where it's much less likely to be trusted as an honest broker uh, in, in the foreseeable future. Thanks so much, Maha, Susan, Cecile, for helping us tease apart what's at stake uh, in this decision. I, I thought it was a great discussion and appreciate uh, all three of you making the time to come on the show. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Pleasure. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of Deep Dish on Global Affairs. As a reminder, the opinions you heard today are those of the people who expressed them and not the institutional positions of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. If you like the show, please subscribe and ask someone else to subscribe as well. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Deep Dish on Global Affairs is produced by Evan Fazio. Our research and editing interns are... Bernie Reyes and Michael Turnin. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish. I want to share with all our listeners that we've launched a Facebook group. You can find us on Facebook under Deep Dish on Global Affairs. This is a public group, so please join in. We'll post new episodes and relevant articles, but it also can be a place for you to ask questions, give feedback, and suggest guests and topics to us. So please check us out, Facebook group, Deep Dish on Global Affairs.